0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jude. That's the second to the last book in the Scriptures right before Revelation. As you're turning there, I do a lot of different things before I I preach in the mornings, and it's not the same every time, but this morning I uh, went out to a graveyard And I looked around at all of the grave sites that were there. And one of the first thoughts that came to my mind this morning was how many of the people that are buried in those graves, the bodies that are buried in those graves, would would have loved to have had the opportunity to hear the Word of God this morning. So it's a great privilege that we have. This is the Word of God. Jude Let's pray this morning. Our Lord, this is your word. It is a word that is searching, a word that Lord, it penetrates so deeply into our hearts that it discerns what's there. It's a word that in your grace, Lord, that sometimes you you bring, Lord, light to what's in there and it is painful and it is convicting but it is so good for us if we heed that. And so this morning I pray, as your word is preached, I pray that the people wouldn't hear me, that they would hear the word of Christ and that they would, trans, they would be transformed by it. We ask these things. and In fact, we rely on you for this. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Boom! Marissa heard a multitude of frightening sounds. An explosion. Glass shattering. People screaming. She felt the ground beneath her feet quake and a wave of heat slap her in the face as if she had just opened a hot oven. A combination of fear and shock consumed her as she tried to make heads or tails out of what had just happened. You see, Marissa was on the 98th floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center when the first plane crashed into the North Tower on September 11, 2001. The piercing sound of the fire alarm began blaring, warning people to get out. Marissa looked at the two co-workers that she had just been speaking with before the explosion, but they weren't heading towards the emergency exit. One decision laid before Marissa— ignore the warning with her co-workers, or heed it and flee to safety. Now, you and I, we have the benefit of knowing what would become of the South Tower on that day. And I don't think that there's anybody in this room, if given the opportunity, to go to Marissa in that moment, knowing what we know, would not plead with her and cry to her, heed the warning, heed the alarm, heed the alarm. You see, alarms are good. They can save us from energy, uh, injury. They can save our lives if we heed them. See, in a similar fashion, the Lord's alarms are good. He saves the lost through warnings. He preserves His people through warnings. He snatches back the wayward through warnings. And so the Lord's warnings, the Lord's alarms, they are good, but they're also prophetic for those who fail to heed them. If those who ignore them, for those who scoff, thinking that no such judgment could ever come upon them, well, this morning we're actually going to be looking at three sober warnings from the, from the Lord in the book of Jude. And for those who heed them, they will be a source of great blessing for you, But for those who ignore them, I'm sad to say that the judgment they predict will be prophetic. So I want to urge you this morning to pay close attention. This is not a lighthearted scripture, so I promise you this is not going to be a lighthearted sermon. So buckle up. Last week we saw and read today, in fact, that there were certain people that had crept into this local church that Jude is writing to. And they'd crept in unnoticed, they crept in under the radar, and they were prof- people who have professed to be Christians, but we learned last week that they were phonies, counterfeits. Those were who perverted the grace of God into a license to continue to indulge in their sin, to indulge their sinful passions. We saw that someone... Uh, we made the point that, that what the grace of God does to someone who's actually experienced God's saving grace is it doesn't lead that person to continue to indulge in sin. It actually leads them the opposite direction, to renounce sin and to live an upright, godly life in this present age. That means in the here and now. And we spoke about that, that there are going to be apostates that are in the church, which are people who profess to be Christians that end up forsaking the Lord, end up turning away from the Lord. And these apostates, we, we, we noticed that, that sometimes this is a, a public and outward rejection of the Lord, where they reject Christ, they reject Christianity. But all too often, it's not that at all, as it was the case for Jude's audience. These were people who were still sitting in the pews of the church. People who still professed to be Christians. People who had already turned away from the Lord silently and subtly by a subtle shift in beliefs, it kept on going more and more and more, and that ended up manifesting itself in a subtle shift in speech and a subtle shift in in behavior. These people were, and still are, a dangerous threat to the church. Their influence is magnetic. Their beliefs and their teaching, they're corrupt. And this is a recipe for disaster for a local church. It's a recipe for the corruption of the Word of God, which results in the corruption of the church, which results in a bunch of religious people gathering together and deluded into thinking that heaven is their home when in actuality a place is already being prepared for them in hell. And so Jude calls us, the church, to battle, to protect, to guard the truth, to not let it be compromised, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This morning we're going to move on to verses 5 through 7, where the Lord is going to warn us about the frightening, horrifying end that comes to those who forsake Him. He's going to use three events in history to illustrate this one sober point, beware. The road to apostasy is marked with unbelief, self-rule, and sexual immorality. Turn to Christ now before the eternal fire consumes you. Now, I think you can go ahead and see right now that this is not a message that is going to fill a stadium This is not a message that's going to tickle your ears and and tell you things that you want to hear. It's not a message that's probably going to be tweetable. But that's okay, because in God's providence, this is exactly what you and I need to hear today. We need to hear the undiluted Word of God that is able to save and preserve our souls, and to that we will now turn. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you... Stop. I want to remind you, church... You, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. I want to remind you, church, you know, it's rather interesting to think about how Jude's original recipients, this local church, would have heard this letter for the first time. They probably would have been in a gathering much like we are today, where the entire congregation is together. And the entire congregation that included those who had crept in unnoticed. And when we think about that, we have to remember that whenever the Word of God is preached on the Lord's Day, that there are only two types of people that are hearing it. The saved and the lost. The converted and the unconverted. The sheep and the goats. The wheat and the tares. And so this was the case for Jude's audience as they gathered together to hear this letter read out loud. And it is the case for us today as we gather here to hear the same letter expounded and preached. But I want to address two groups of people that fall under that category, not of the lost, but that fall under the category of those who are converted, those who are saved. First, I want to address the category of those who are wayward. Sometimes we call them backsliders. How do you actually tell that somebody is a backslider and not an apostate? Well, a backslider actually hears the warnings of the Lord and then turns back to Him. Whereas the apostate continues on down the path that they are going. The second category of people I want to address this morning are those of you who, who you struggle with an assurance of salvation. You ask yourself often, am I really saved? You're keenly aware of your sin, your weaknesses, your lack of affections. You're keenly aware of your doubts and your fears. For you this morning, I just want you to remember one thing as we look at these warnings. I want you to remember that it is the presence of faith in Christ rather than the measure of faith in Christ that is the evidence of salvation. That is the evidence of conversion. And so as we go through these warnings this morning, I want you who struggle with that to ask yourself the question, does my life evidence the presence of faith in Christ or is it bearing fruits of something else? So let's move into the warnings. The first warning I want you to see is in verse five, and that's this, that the road to apostasy is marked with unbelief. Verse 5, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, you used to know this. Has it become fuzzy in your memory? Let 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 me remind you about it. That Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. First, let me just address the big elephant in the room. (laughs) Was it Jesus or was it Yahweh that saved the people out of the land of Egypt? Answer, yes. See, Jude is making one of the clearest, most unmistakable declarations of Jesus' divinity in all the scriptures. The pre-incarnate Jesus, God the Son, is being identified as Yahweh. Yahweh. Now, don't miss the weight of that. What that means is that when you open up your scriptures and you're reading in Exodus, what you're reading about, you're seeing right there before you is is the pre-incarnate God the Son doing a mighty work rescuing the people out of Egypt. Now, don't don't make the mistake of thinking that somehow that means that God the Father and the Holy Spirit weren't involved in that as well. The triune God always works together. Right, We think about salvation. It's God the Father who chose a people to save. It's God the Son who secured their salvation through His life, death, and resurrection. And it's God the Spirit who applies that salvation through regeneration into saving faith. So the three persons of the Godhead are one Savior. And in the same way, the three persons of the Godhead were involved in rescuing the people out of the land of Egypt. Now, some of you probably have a translation Of the Bible that doesn't say Jesus here, it says Lord. If you've got King James or the NIV or the NASB, those translations say Lord, but I actually think the the translators of the ESV got it right here based on the manuscript evidence. Now, if you want to talk about that afterward, be happy to talk with you about it. We don't have time to spend on that uh, this morning. So, moving on, what I want you to see in these three historical accounts, I want you to see that there is a a cycle, a pattern that you're going to see in all three of these. And this cycle is this, that there is privilege that's followed by rebellion and then rebellion followed by judgment. And We're going to see that in Israel. We're going to see that with the angels. We'll see that with Sodom and Gomorrah. So first, let's let's start with the extraordinary privilege of the Israelites. Jude says that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. This, of course, is referring to, to the Exodus. The Israelites, they were under a very harsh, unrelenting slave master, Pharaoh. He was a wicked man. He had ordered infanticide to all the Hebrew males that were born. He was a murderer. Well, the Lord heard the cries of of Israel, and in His great mercy, He, He raises up Moses and Aaron to come and to deliver them out of enslavement. And so you know the story through a display of ten mighty plagues. The Lord rescues these people out of the land of Egypt and sets the Hebrews free. Think about the privilege there. The privilege of God hearing their cries and responding. The privilege of being recipients of of a promise that God would bring them into this promised land, the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. The privilege of seeing the mighty hand of God at work right before their very eyes. The ten plagues. The parting of the Red Sea. But then there was rebellion. At first it seemed as if they, they trusted the Lord. Right? They took the, the blood of the Passover lamb and they smeared it across the doorpost. But as we would, time would reveal, it was a superficial belief. Most of their hearts were still uncircumcised. they were unregenerate, and unbelief began to show its ugly little head. It began at the Red Sea. After they'd experienced all the things that God had done right before their eyes, the Pharaoh, pharaohs and his armies were pressing in upon them, and they didn't think that God would rescue them. They desired more than anything to go back to Egypt to become slaves again. And then it continued, in Mara, at Mara. See, the Lord uh, had led them to, to Mara, and when they got there, they started to grumble and complain because they didn't have water, so they didn't trust the Lord to meet their basic provision of water. Then it continued in the wilderness of sin. They grumbled again because they didn't trust the Lord to meet their basic need of food. Then it manifest itself again with the instructions about manna the Lord had provided and provided and provided and now he's provided manna from heaven to feed them to take care of them and he gave them instructions and what did they do they go gather more than he had commanded them and then they go out on the Sabbath and they try to gather on the day that the Lord said I'm not providing manna on this day and then it happened again at Meribah After experiencing the Lord's provision over and over and over again, they didn't trust Him again to meet their basic need of water. And so, then we come to Sinai. They had had an experience with the Lord on the mountain of Mount Sinai. They had entered into a covenant with Him, and then almost immediately... They break the covenant with their God and violate the second commandment by creating a golden calf to worship it, showing forth they didn't trust God, period. And so by the time we get to the edge of the promised land, the cake of unbelief was already baked. And the icing on the cake was that they didn't trust the Lord to fulfill the promise of bringing them into the land that He told, him, told them that He was bringing them out of slavery to bring them to. I want you to hear this. After hearing the faithless report of the spies, not counting Caleb and Joshua, numbers 14 tells us this: Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, "Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness?" Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Do you hear the unbelief? That the Lord has done all that He's done. He's provided everything that we've needed all the way thus far. He's parted the Red Sea. He sent ten plagues. He's provided for us water and food and kept us alive and sustained us. And He's brought us to the edge of the promised land to do what? Not to fulfill that promise, but to kill us and our kids. And then the judgment that Jude refers to. The privileged people of Israel rebelled against the Lord, and now we see His judgment. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, What you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land that I swore that I would make you dwell, except for Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness." And so as we read on, we see exactly, that's exactly what happened to the Israelites. Every single one of them that were over 20, except for Caleb and Joshua, were destroyed in the wilderness by who? By Jesus. Jude's point is this. Church, there are people in your midst who are living in unbelief. In verse 16, Jude calls them grumblers. You know, that's the same term that's used over and over again in Exodus and in Numbers to describe the Israelites' unbelief in the wilderness. They are grumblers. Judah's saying that if the Israelites were destroyed by Jesus in the wilderness because of their unbelief, what do you think awaits you who continue in your unbelief? Beware, the road to apostasy is marked with unbelief. The second warning I want you to see this morning is in verse 6. The road to apostasy is marked with self-rule. Self-rule. I'm ruling myself. I am not submitting to God's rule. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So despite the ridiculous depictions of angels that we see in our culture, like with Hallmark, fat babies with wings, angels are actually exalted in exalted positions in the created order, right? Angels are, are, are these spiritual beings that have moral judgment and intelligence and extraordinary power. We're told that they have the privilege of worshiping the Lord in His direct presence, we're told that, that they are warriors that are doing battle against the demonic powers in the spiritual realm. We're told that they are minister, ministering spirits to, to the saints. And so to be an angel is an extraordinary privilege. But then we see rebellion. Not by all the angels, but by a certain number that Jude says did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Now, there's some debate amongst scholars as to exactly what Jude is referring to here. There are some scholars that think he's referring back to Genesis 6, where the sons of God took wives for themselves from the daughters of man. And so in this interpretation, they see the sons of God as as angels leaving their dwelling place in, in the angelic realm and coming to the earth and having sexual relations with human beings, which was prohibited by God. So they left their proper dwelling. Other scholars believe this is referring to the fall of Satan and, 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 and the fallen angels that went with him. So they left their positions that God had placed them in and they sought to overthrow God and, and to seize His authority. The good news for us today is we actually don't have to know exactly what Jude's referring to to understand his point. The point is, is that the angels in view, they rejected God's authority over them and so they seized that authority themselves. So the point of comparison is that the apostates who had crept into the church unnoticed, they were doing the same exact thing. They had rejected God's authority over them. They had seized that authority for themselves. So a little later in his letter, Jude is going to clue us in to two places that these people look to for their authority. In verse 8, he says that they rely on their dreams. And in verse 16, he says they follow their own sinful desires. And so their authority was not the word of God. Their authority was themselves, their own minds, what they dream up, and their own desires. And Jude warns us exactly where such a life will lead, to judgment, just like the angels who rebelled. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, listen, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Right now, these angels that Judah's referring to are bound, imprisoned in haunting fear. That's what the word gloomy gloomy darkness refers to. It's a darkness that causes fear. See, they know their end. They know that there's no chance of escape. They know what's coming to them. They know there's no chance of parole. They tremble in fear like a convicted criminal with a hood around his head, And a rope around his neck, knowing that any moment the floor beneath him is going to fall and bring him to the final phase of his judgment. See, when Jude says the judgment of the great day, he's referring to the final judgment that we read about in Revelation 20, where Satan and and all the demons, the fallen angels, and all the ungodly will be consigned to the lake of fire. Jesus refers to it as the everlasting fire, a place of eternal torment. So the point for Jude's audience and for us is, if the angels who rejected God's authority are awaiting that final judgment, what do you think awaits you who continue to reject His authority and live by your own? Beware, the road to apostasy is marked with self-rule. The third warning that I want you to see is in verse 7. The road to apostasy is marked with sexual immorality. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And when you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, let me just ask you this. What comes to your mind? I bet the first thing that comes to your mind is not, oh, what a lovely place, right? It's probably not, I want to call my travel agent and if it was still there today, I would book my next vacation there. That is not what's going through your mind. But one of the things that we forget is that Sodom and Gomorrah were actually very lovely places. They had been recipients of extra measures of God's common grace. You may remember when Abraham and Lot separated because they, 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 there wasn't enough room in the land for their, them to both have their livestock there's a reason why Lot chose the land that included Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 13 tells us the reason. It says, And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar." This was before the Lord, uh, the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's in the text. I didn't put that there. The land was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Anything that's compared to the Garden of Eden is a very lovely place. In His common grace, the Lord had made it a prosperous land, a productive land, a land that was ripe for human flourishing under the rule of Almighty God. And let's not also forget that this was only a few hundred years after the Lord brought the flood on wicked humanity. By this time, do you know that at least one of Noah's sons who had been on the ark, Shem, was still alive? And the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have most likely would have been very familiar with the floodwaters of God's judgment for the wickedness of the people on on the earth at that time. And they would have been familiar with the message of righteousness preached by Noah. And so it was a place of extraordinary privilege. But as the cycle goes, then there was rebellion Now, when we think about the rebellion of Sodom and Gomorrah that tends to be one event that comes to mind and that's when the the men of Sodom surrounded Lot's house and wanted to know the two men who had come to stay with him in other words they wanted to engage in homosexual activities with these two men who actually we find out are are angels interestingly enough when Genesis recounts this event it says that the men that surrounded Lot's house were both young and old, and they included every man in the city to the last one. How do you know that a society has exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and is worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator? Well, one of the signs is the prevalence and acceptance of homosexuality. That's not my opinion. That's what the Word of God tells us in Romans 1. You'll you'll notice in Romans 1 that there is a progression from suppressing the truth about God to men and women's minds being darkened, to God uh, lifting His restraining hand away and turning men and women over to the lust of their own hearts, to those men and women running, running headlong into sexual immorality. But that's not enough. Then they run headlong into homosexuality. And then Paul says, into all manner of unrighteousness. And he gives a big list of what that looks like. And so when you see this in a society, you see a society that is deep in the woods of human depravity. And that was tragically the case for Sodom and Gomorrah. And that is tragically the case for where we live today. Jude says that they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, or some translations say strange flesh, that's referring to homosexuality. This encompasses all unlawful sexual activities, whether that be heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, or anything and everything in between that. But that wasn't all that was going on at Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel tells us that that they had an excess of food and prosperous ease, yet they did not aid the poor amongst them. Isaiah tells us they were proud of their sin, and they flaunted it and they weren't ashamed of it. In Jeremiah, we learn that they walked in lies and they encouraged evildoers to continue to practice their evil deeds rather than to turn from them. How quickly human depravity can pollute a land that is like the garden of God. It had become a cesspool of wickedness. And the point of comparison is that the apostates who had crept into the church, they were living exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah, in all shades of sexual immorality. And again, Jude warns us exactly where such a life will lead, to judgment, like Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord rained down fire and sulfur from heaven, and the privileged Sodom and Gomorrah were consumed for their wickedness. You know that in the Scriptures that it's mentioned over 20 times, Sodom and Gomorrah is used as an illustration for those who continue to live in unrepentant sin of what awaits them. Jude says that they serve as an example to us by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What he means is that the fire and the sulfur that we saw consuming Sodom and Gomorrah is just a shadow of the fire that is going to to consume the unrepentant both inside and outside the visible church in hell forever. So Sodom and Gomorrah is a gracious warning to us. If you continue to live in sexual immorality, if you continue to indulge your sinful passions, if you do not turn from them and turn to the Lord, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is going to look like a walk in the park in comparison to what's coming to you In a sermon titled, The Saint's Horror at the Sinner's Hell, Charles Spurgeon described hell this way. He said, I I need not stop to paint. For colors equal to hell's terrors, I have none. In other words, I can't describe hell for you with words. He says, that dreadful place where the last gathering shall be held that great synagogue of Satan, the place appointed for unbelievers and prepared for the devil and his angels, where sullen moans and hollow groans and shrieks of tortured spirits shall be their only music, where weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth shall be their perpetual occupation, where joy is a stranger and hope unknown, where death itself would be a friend. No, I will not attempt to describe what our Savior veiled in words like these. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched, outer darkness where the, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. We drop the curtain, hoping that you have seen enough to make you pray, gather not my soul with sinners. That is a sobering alarm. All three of these examples, historical examples today, are sobering alarms. Now maybe you're listening this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I cannot wait for this sermon to get over because it just doesn't feel good. No, it doesn't. When smoke alarms go off, they don't feel good. When your home security system goes off in the middle of the night, that doesn't feel good. So so it is with this. Just because something doesn't feel good doesn't mean it's not good for us. So I think that that Ray Comfort gives a great illustration of this. He He says, imagine you're standing on the edge of a cliff, a thousand foot cliff, and you look over and you think to yourself, wow, I'm really high up here. Suddenly, the ground beneath your feet begins to crumble and give way. Fear seizes you. And he asks the question, Does the fear feel good? No. But is the fear itself good? Yes. Because it's telling you, move away, move away, move away before you die. So as we move into a time of application this morning, remember that God's alarms might not feel good, but they are so good for your soul if if you heed them. First thing, application point that I have this morning is beware of presuming upon your godly privileges. See, we live in a country and in a generation where we are surrounded by godly privileges. We have just about unlimited access to the Word of God in any and every translation that you can imagine. We have innumerable resources to study the Word of God, whether that be in our bookshelves or on the internet. We have the freedom to worship the one true living God right now. There are several hundred thousand churches in the United States. So the gospel is not too tough to find if you're willing to search for it. But be careful that you don't presume on your godly privileges like Israel and the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah. Just because you've had the privilege to be on a membership role of a church for the entirety of your life is no sure sign that you're saved just because you 've experienced uh, and uh, have responded I should say to an altar call or were baptized at some point in your life is no sure sign that you 're saved Just because that you 've grown up in, in a household with godly parents or you had godly grandparents who taught you about the Word of God, who made you go to church is no sure sign that you 're saved just because you 've had the privilege of the Lord rescuing you from some difficult life situation or some Some sinful addiction is no sure sign that you're saved. Without doubt, most of these are incredible privileges, incredible blessings from God, and we should thank Him every single day of our lives for them. But in and of themselves, they can't save us. You see, Israel was privileged to be rescued out of the land of Egypt, the angels were privileged to be angels. Sodom and Gomorrah was privileged to live in a land that God had blessed significantly, but they all fell because their privileges weren't united with faith, with belief, which leads us to the next three points of application. Beware of unbelief like the Israelites in the wilderness. Let's first ask the question, what is unbelief? Well, it's the opposite of what Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us is belief. It says, Now faith, or belief, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so belief is a conviction, and what is hope for, by the way? What's hope for is what God has promised. Your hope is in what God has promised. It's a conviction, it's a confidence that God is going to fulfill His promises. Even though they haven't been realized by us yet, we are confident that they are coming in the future. That's what belief is. But unbelief is the opposite of that it's the absence of confidence in God and in Him fulfilling His promises. It's a hardened uncertainty in the heart, not trusting God. Now, I want you to notice that one of the implications of a definition like this is that if there is an uncertainty about God fulfilling His promises, there must necessarily also be an uncertainty in regard to the character of God. If I don't believe, if I don't have a confidence that God is going to fulfill His promises, that means I don't have a confidence that God is who He says He is. That He is faithful to always fulfill His promises. That He is truthful, that is, He's not a liar. And that He is sovereign, He actually has the ability to fulfill the promises that He He made. And so plain and simple, unbelief is a heart that doesn't trust the one true living God. Didn't we see that over and over this morning with Israel? They just didn't trust Him, and they certainly didn't trust Him to fulfill His promises. So let me just cut to the chase this morning. Do you trust God? Do you trust what His Word says? Do you trust what His Word says about you? Do you trust what His Word says about Him? Do you trust His promises? Do you trust His promise of salvation? If the Lord were to take your breath away right now in the place that you sit or the place that you're at, wherever you're watching this on live stream, if He were to take that breath away from you right now, are you confident that you would go immediately into the presence of the Lord instead of into gloomy darkness with the angels and the ungodly who are awaiting that final judgment? And what gives you that confidence? Have you lived a life that is that is good enough that, that though you haven't lived perfectly and you've made mistakes, have you lived a life that's good enough that when God sees you, He's going to approve of you, He's going to see that you weren't perfect, but man, He tried to live or she's tried to live a life that's pleasing to me. I can see that when they're church attendants. I can see that with baptism. I can see that with all of those things that they've done. Listen, if that's where your confidence is, I have to tell you this morning that you were living in unbelief because that's not the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is this, that you and I are in a grave predicament that we cannot wiggle our way out of because of our own efforts, that we stand before a holy God as convicted criminals. You say, I'm not a criminal? Prepare, compare yourself, examine yourself before His law, the Ten Commandments. One thing you'll you'll, you'll come to see if you understand His commandments rightly is is that you're not a good person, (laughs) and neither am I. We have failed to worship the one true living God with the honor and glory that He's due. We have created a God to suit ourselves and we have broken the second commandment thereby. We have failed to to honor His name. We've used it in vain over and over and over again by both our speech and our lives. We have failed to keep the Lord's day holy. We are murderers because we have hated other people. We are adulterers because we, are, we have lusted after, after people. Jesus says you've committed adultery in your heart if you've done that. You're li- we are liars. We are thieves. We are covetors. And so we've broken God's law, every single one of them. And so it's like God has an a, a evidence table, as it were, in, in front of Him in the courtroom of God. And that evidence table is piled high with your sin and with my sin. And it keeps accumulating more and more and more with every day that we live. And there's nothing that we can do to take it away. Nothing that we can do to get rid of it. But the gospel is this, that in love, God the Father sent His only Son to rescue His people from this grave predicament. God the the Father sent His Son into this world to take on a human nature, fully God and fully man. He was born under His own law And he fulfilled his own law. He fulfilled the Ten Commandments perfectly, never sinning once. And he earned a perfect, righteous record. And then he went to the cross. And it's as if he went into the courtroom of God and scraped all of his people's sins off of the evidence table and said, this belongs to me. And he went to the cross. And while he was on the cross, darkness plagued the land. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did He say that? Because the Father had forsaken Him because the Son had become sin for His people. The infinite wrath of the Father that would have come crushing down on His people in hell had come crushing down on His own Son. And when He has finished paying it, He said, it is finished. Every sin of His people satisfied in full measure. He laid down His life, He was placed in a tomb, and on the third day, the Father brought Him back to life again. Jesus blew the doors off of death. A clear sign to the world that the salvation that He offers is not imaginary, but real. And now He commands everybody everywhere, all people everywhere, to repent, which means to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. To no longer trust in yourself, To no longer trust in your goodness and your good efforts. You don't have any. To trust in His Son and His righteousness. And the promise of the gospel is this. Those who do that, from all who turn from sin and turn to Christ, trusting in Him alone, the forgiveness of sins, all of them, the gift of righteousness, the perfect righteousness of the Son, credited to the account of those who trust in Him as if they had never sinned before. Reconciliation with God. Eternal life. Is that what you believe? Is that what you're trusting in? If it's not, beware. The Lord, if the Lord destroyed those whom He rescued out of Egypt due to their unbelief, what will become of you if you continue in yours? See, the next two application points are really just symptoms of an unbelieving heart. Beware of living under your own authority like the angels. If I were to play a video of your life on this screen over the last year, would I see a person who is uh, living under God's authority? Would I see a person who is, is making a genuine effort to order their life in accordance with God's Word? Would I see a growing pursuit of submission to God in all areas of life? Would I see submission to God in worship on the Lord's Day? Would I see submission to Him in the secret places of your home? Would I see submission to Him in how you talk to other people? Would I see submission to Him in the things that you believe are right and wrong? Would they actually line up with the Word of God? Would I see submission to Him in your education? That is, in your schooling, kids. Would I see submission to Him in your work? Submission to Him in your marriage. Would I see submission to Him if you're single? Would I see submission to Him on your computer? Would I see submission to Him on your smartphone? Would I see a person who is genuinely trying to live under God's authority, not perfectly, but growingly? Or would I see a person living under their own authority while giving God in His Word lip service? Just beware. Rejection of God's authority is a fruit of unbelief. If the angels who rejected His authority are awaiting final judgment, what will become of you if you continue to reject His authority? Lastly, beware of living in sexual immorality like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right now you can probably find four or five churches in a ten-mile radius that will tell you, comfort your conscience and tell you that all is well even if you're living in unrepentant sexual sin. There are churches in this town that will, under the guise of love, who accept people into their membership who are living in unrepentant sexual sin. But despite how loving that might seem to the world, do you know that that's the most unloving thing that a church could ever do? It's like a doctor telling somebody with stage 4 cancer, oh, you're going to be fine. You've got a long life ahead of you. Instead of telling them the truth. But you're, you're your 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 condition is gravely serious if you want to live you need to start chemotherapy and radiation immediately see listen to what the word of god says this isn't just this isn't Corey talking first Corinthians 6 9 through 10 or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived do not be deceived why Because it's so easy to be deceived about this. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, neither the sexually immoral, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of you will inherit the kingdom of God if you continue. See, as a minister of the gospel, I am bound to the Word of God. I am bound to tell you what God's Word says, not what my Word says. And God's Word says this, that if you continue in unrepentant sexual sin, which is any sexual activity outside of the context of a marriage between one man and one woman, if you continue to live in unrepentant sexual sin, heaven will not be your home, and hell will. Now one of the key one key word there is unrepentant sexual sin. No matter how deep you are in sexual sin, whether that's heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pedophilia, bestiality, it doesn't matter. No matter how deep you are in sexual sin, no matter how dark of a place, no matter how strong it is, there is grace available to you if you turn to Christ. And it is the grace of forgiveness and it is the grace of power over that sin. Maybe you say, my sexual sin sin is too strong, I just don't have the strength to turn from it. You're right. You don't. That's why you're not going to be when you turn to Christ. You're not trusting in your strength. You're trusting in His, and He has promised that the same power that rose Him from the dead is the same power that's available to you to put your sin to death. So turn, turn from pornography. Turn, turn from this weird window shopping that people who are already in marriages do and look at other women or men. Turn from all flavors of sexual immorality and turn to Christ. But if you don't, beware. If Sodom and Gomorrah weren't spared because of their sexual sin, what do you think awaits you if you continue in yours? As we close this morning, I want to tell you what happened to Marissa, who was in the South Tower in the World Trade Center on that day, September the 11th. The alarm was blaring, and Marissa's two co workers weren't budging an inch. She looked around her office and saw some glued to what was going on 131 feet away at the North Tower as they saw smoke billowing from the building. She saw others going into one of the rooms in her office for a meeting. But Marissa heeded the alarm and headed to the emergency exit. As she rushed down the stairwell, she encountered one of her coworkers, Tamitha, who decided to turn back after she had walked down several flights of stairs to go back to her cubicle to get pictures of her babies. But Marissa continued down the stairs, exiting the building, and made it out safely. Tragically, Tamitha and her other coworkers that were mentioned perished as the South Tower came crashing down. See, it's a foolish thing to ignore a fire alarm. But it's even more foolish to ignore the Lord's alarms. If the Lord's warnings in Jude have caused the alarm of your conscience to start blaring today, don't be foolish and ignore them. Don't reject the Lord's mercy today in sending you an alarm instead of sending you into gloomy darkness. Heed His gracious warning, which is this. Beware. Beware. The road to apostasy is marked with unbelief, self-rule, and sexual immorality. Turn to Christ now before the eternal fire consumes you. What a gracious warning for us today. Let's pray. First, Lord, I want to acknowledge how heavy a message like this is. But in your sovereignty, you have given us this, not because you're against us, but because you're for us. We're relying on you today, Lord, to transform that conviction into repentance. We're relying on you, Lord, today to save the lost. relying on you, Lord, today to preserve your church. This is a part of what it means to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We don't compromise the word of God. We've not given, been given the authority to do so. So I pray for this church, I pray for us as a whole, that, Lord, we would be grateful that in your grace you have allowed us to be able to be in a place where truth can be proclaimed and not watered down. We pray, Lord, for your grace upon us today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll stand, we will sing one last song.